Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHESS, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHESS podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the host of the CHESS podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative discussion on lung cancer detection. Very fortunate to have the authors of the CHESS publication entitled Pulmonary Nodules, Lung Cancer Screening, and Lung Cancer in the Medicare Population. I'll ask our two authors to introduce themselves. Paul? Yes, I'm Paul Pinsky. I'm the chief of the early detection branch in the Division of Cancer Prevention at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you, Paul. And Raymond? Hi, I'm Raymond Dosaragiabo. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist, uh, chief scientist at the Baptist Memorial Healthcare Corporation in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, principal investigator of uh, detecting early lung cancer in the Mississippi Delta Project. And it's a pleasure to have both of you on the podcast with us. This is a really important topic, uh, that of detection of lung cancer. Raymond, maybe you can kick us off. Why is it so important for us to detect lung cancer early? Yes, thank you, Dominic. Uh, it is important to detect lung cancer early uh, because, number one, lung cancer is the um, oncologic public health challenge of our age, both here in the United States and globally. Um, it accounts for uh, about, what, 12, 13 percent of all uh, major cancers in the U.S., but uh, almost 25 percent of all U.S. cancer deaths. And the global stats are maybe even worse. Um, we know that the problem with lung cancer is, in most cases, by the time diagnosed, it is advanced. So about half of the patients have stage four diagnosis in the U.S. And um, about se- oh, not quite 70 percent have uh, stage three and four when cure is so much harder to achieve and treatment more expensive and toxic. We know that Lung cancer can be found early. The National Lung Screening Trial and the Nelson, the uh, Dutch-Belgian Lung Cancer Screening Trials, both clearly demonstrated that. The challenge has been, um, in spite of the amazing results from those two trials, implementing uh, screening in real life has been a real challenge. So most estimates in the U.S., indicate that it's less than uh, 10% of all eligible persons who have actually had a screening test, even though screening has been available as a covered health care benefit in the U.S. since 2015. And so we, uh, in the Memphis region, uh, looked at alternative ways of uh, finding lung cancer early. And one approach seems to be um, just following the guidelines for managing incidentally detected lung nodules. We did that in our regional population, found some interesting results. And Paul and I uh, took a look at national data to see if our results from Memphis were generalizable. So that's really important. Uh, we know that not enough patients are diagnosed with lung cancer and lung cancer screening uptake is uh, low. So you decided to focus on incidental lung nodules. Uh, Paul, why did you perform this study? Yeah, so uh, 
Raymond study was basically on in one medical center in one area of the country, uh, and we were basically trying to see what it, what the similar results would be in a nationwide database. Um, and to do that, uh, there's a, a database that NCI has created that merges Medicare claims with the SEER uh, cancer registry data. So that allows us to look at a large segment of the population, basically uh, the Medicare population that's in the SEER areas, which covers now almost half of the U.S. Um, so this was a database that let us uh, let us pursue two basic aims. One is just to characterize the prevalence of nodules, you know, what what proportion of people over, a, say, a five-year period uh, will be diagnosed with a, with a pulmonary nodule, and then what are the risk factors for uh, being uh, having a nodule reported, demographic and otherwise. And then among those who do have a reported nodule, what's their incidence of lung cancer going forward? That was one set of aims. And the other set of aims was to look at people who diagnosed with lung cancer and comparing those who were diagnosed shortly following a LOTO CT scan versus shortly following a reported lung nodule versus everyone else um, to see if the characteristics of lung cancer in terms of the stage and also survival were similar among those who diagnosed following a reported nodule versus diagnosed following a LOTO CT scan. So those were uh, the basic study aims. Those are very clear aims, and it's really important that you focused on both going forward as well as going back. So let's uh, jump into your methods. Uh, Paul, what were the important methodology that you used, and how did they address any limitations of any prior studies? Yeah, so as I mentioned, this SEER uh, Medicare database, uh, we use the SEER data to characterize the cancers. And a strength of that is that SEER is very well annotated and and consistent over different areas. Um, so that's definitely a strength of being able to use SEER to get ascertained cancer diagnoses and characteristics such as stage, histology, and, and survival. Um, then in terms of the procedures, we use uh, the procedure codes to identify uh, chest CTs that were undertaken. And then the diagnostic codes to identify reported uh, nodules. Um, now, one limitation of using the uh, claims and the ICD codes is there is a specific ICD code for a solitary pulmonary nodule. But if, if somebody has multiple nodules, it can be coded as something else, uh, which is not exclusive to multiple nodules. It also includes other things. So there, uh, I can discuss that more later, but uh, that is a limitation. So we started out with just sort of the restricted defini definition of just a solitary pulmonary nodule and then did a sensitivity analysis of the broader category. Uh, so a strength of our analysis is one is the besides the using being able to use SEER to identify the cancers, um, it's a very large and representative sample. 
So to assess the prevalence of reported nodules, we were able to look at over 600,000 uh, Medicare subjects. Um, and then we were able to look at almost 50,000 lung cancer cases. So uh, they're very large numbers and generally representative of the Medicare population. And then just to jump into um, the generalizability, um, how has this database uh, shown to be generalizable in any other conditions or any other um, studies looking at lung cancer? Um, does it represent what's happening in the United States? Um, it, you know, it's been widely used in general uh, for just all different kinds of cancer. I mean, basically, um, the SEER areas have been specifically uh, chosen to be representative of cancer rates and trends in the U.S. So in that sense, the SEER areas are representative. That's been shown. And then basically, this is um, obviously it's restricted to the 65 plus, you know, basically Medicare population. And within that, it's it's the people who had the um, claims available, which is fee-for-service Medicare, as opposed to people in like HMO Medicare. So that is a limitation, but in general, that's they're generally representative. There's not that much differences between people in fee-for-service and people in HMO Medicare. Gotcha. So let's jump into your key findings. Um, either Paul or Raymond can answer this. Um, what were your key findings, um, and how did you interpret them? Yeah, I can start off quick, and then and Ray, Raymond can add. Um, so first, we we found what the uh, the prevalence was over uh, people followed basically for about a five year period between 2014 and 2019. Uh, so about a quarter of people had at least one diagnostic chest CT during the period, and about 5% of people had um, a reported pulmonary nodule based on sort of our more restricted definition of solitary pulmonary nodule. Um, and then there were some minor differences demographically. Men and women uh, had pretty similar rates, a uh, little higher rates for non-Hispanic whites than some of the other um, racial and ethnic groups and um, higher rate of COPD, higher rate of nodules for those with COPD and for those with a history of tobacco use disorder. Um, then we looked at the cumulative incidence of lung cancer following, uh, following the report of a nodule. Um, that was about 3% after a year and almost 5% after two years. Um, and that can be compared to in a in a screening trial such as NLST, the uh, cumulative incidence following a positive screen where a nodule was found. And then quickly just going to the the other the other set of aims, which is revolved around the lung cancer cases. Um, very importantly, we found that the phase distribution among the cases that had a prior reported nodule was very similar to the stage distribution of those who had a prior low-dose CT screen. And both those groups had a much more favorable, much more higher, higher percentage of stage one presentation than the reference group who had neither a prior low-dose CT, 
CT scan nor a prior uh, reported pulmonary nodule. Um, so in addition to the, the stage distribution being similar, uh, also we looked at three-year lung cancer specific and overall survival. And again, uh, the pulmonary nodule, those with the history of pulmonary nodule and the history of low-dose CT screening had similar survival uh, and was much better than the reference group who had neither. So that's sort of the basic findings, and, and Ray can add. Yeah, Paul. I, yes, um, I, I think it's, uh, it, as Paul has described, um, it, what we are seeing, if you look at the ratios, um, essentially for every one lung cancer in the Sierra Medicare cohort that was uh, preceded by a screening test for every one lung cancer patient diagnosed who had had an LDCT, a lung cancer screening test before diagnosis, there were approximately five uh, lung cancer patients who were diagnosed uh, after they had previously been identified as having a lung nodule, one to five. And this is an important uh, point because it's pretty much identical to what we found in the Mississippi Delta uh, cohort, um, which tells us, which indicates to us that um, that at least at the current levels of implementation of LDCT, we maybe have a pretty readily available, viable. A complementary approach to early lung cancer detection if we just applied um, guidelines to manage patients who have lung nodules identified irrespective of uh, their eligibility for lung cancer screening. So I think that's a very uh, important result. The other thing I will, I will point out is that although the um, Screened and the nodule um, population re represented barely uh, just under 20% of the whole cohort that we analyzed. Um, they represented about 35% of all the lung cancer patients who had early stage uh, disease. And, and that ratio of uh, was between the screened and the uh, nodule cohort was one to six in terms of early detection. Once again, indicating that lung cancer screening is very important and we need to continue to disseminate the infrastructure to make it ac accessible to the patients who, who could benefit from it. But concurrently, we really ought to look at hardwiring uh, guideline concordant management of incidentally detected lung nodules as an alternate uh, complementary approach to early detection. Yeah, I think Raymond, I think you nailed it. Um, uh, too often we want to do either or, but uh, your approach and that of uh, uh, Paul's as well is, you know, we can do both. Uh, we can work on both uh, screening uh, lung cancer as well as incidental uh, lung nodules. Um, your study shows us the potential um, that we could identify a lot more lung cancers that are potentially curable just by focusing on these uh, incidental uh, solitary pulmonary nodules. How would you 
suggest uh, that our listeners go about um, collating that kind of information. Uh, obviously, patients are receiving a lot of uh, CAT scans, uh, chest X-rays, imaging performed. Um, if they wanted to start working on uh, systematizing and directing these patients via funnel to um, getting diagnostic biopsies or workup, how would you suggest they go about doing that? Raymond? Yes, um, I think the first recommendation would be, obviously, we have to be safe. We don't want people jumping in and hurting people out of goodwill. So it's important to have a a guideline that the team will use. We uh, use the Fleischner Society's guidelines. We trained a, a team of navigators um, to, to apply the guidelines to use them to triage patients into risk categories that could then be uh, um, directed in different pathways. But prior to that is the challenge of systematizing the capture of these radiologic uh, study reports that indicate the likely presence uh, of a nodule. Um, that's probably the the part that each institution needs to go and look at uh, carefully, how, how best to do it in a comprehensive and efficient way. The way we did it to begin with was we asked our radiologists to um, include a standardized statement in their reports, which enabled us to capture um, those reports on EPIC, which is our electronic health record system. So basically, we were able to automate um, the capture of of um, the flagging of uh, radiology reports in which a radiologist had identified the possibility of a nodule that needed attention. And then, and then those reports were put in a queue and our navigators came behind every day to uh, apply Flashner Society guidelines to triage those patients. Now, there's a problem with that, of course, because it, it still requires human action, uh, starting with the radiologist. Uh, first of all, recognizing the presence of a nodule, which um, may not be, there could be a nodule that the human eye fails to notice. Um, the second is, even when noticed, ensuring that this standardized statement was used always by every radiologist every time. As you can well imagine, humans being the way we are, um, that doesn't happen every 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 time. Uh, and then um, subsequently, the next challenge is making sure that once captured, that the guidelines are uh, reasonably consistently applied. And then a clinician ultimately comes in behind the navigators, the, uh, uh, when I say clinician, I mean a, 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 a pulmonary physician, uh, to then make uh, clinical judgments um, on on next step approach. So basically, guidelines are not laws. Um, they are guardrails that within which we try to practice. So those four steps, um, each one of them could really be tweaked um, at different institutions. And I believe each one of them could also be fortified using technology. So one of the things that we are very interested in doing is looking at how artificial intelligence can help us augment the human eye and how uh, medical informatics systems could be used to 
uh, overcome um, some of the human foibles that uh, can make uh, the, these uh, these uh, kinds of new processes a little bit variable in application. So, so ultimately, I think each institution uh, has to look within their prevailing circumstances to make the best uh, judgment of how best to standardize this uh, guideline concordant management of incidental long nodules opportunity. Definitely agree, Raymond. Paul, I want to bring you into this discussion. Um, Raymond brings up this really important issue of human error um, and the potential to use artificial intelligence either to actually read the radiological images as well as to um, collate all the radiology reports so these uh, patients are directed um, towards a, a lung nodule navigator or a, a pulmonologist. What are your thoughts on that? And also, are we um, able to deal with the volume um, of cases that will subsequently arise from this? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of research on AI for in the low-dose CT screening uh, context. Um, the NLST low-dose CT images have been available for about a decade um, for researchers to develop AI and machine learning on. And they've been very widely used, um, actually had over 500 applications to use those images for developing AI machine learning. Uh, I'm not as familiar with uh, the research on AI machine learning for incidentally detected nodules, but a lot of it would be, would be similar, I would think. Um, and in, in the Lotus CT, area, it's mainly to reduce uh, the false positive rate, you know, to basically uh, rule out nodules that are very li very low likelihood of, of being or becoming cancer. Um, so there's definitely a role of AI in the low-dose CD screening space, but also the uh, incidental pulmonary nodule space. Um, and I, yeah, and there's a lot of Research also just in the workflow and using the EHRs. And in, in our study, you know, this is Medicare population. So it's literally hundreds, if not, you know, more than a thousand institutions and healthcare settings where these patients have, are getting their scans and having their reported pulmonary nodules. So there's probably a wide variety of, of how intense and how that how uh the seriousness of the of the workup and how um how formalized it is so this is sort of an average over all institutions some of which like like Raymond's institution are very careful in in trying to follow patients according to the guidelines and others probably less so so there there would seem to be a lot of potential to increase the um the rigor by which the guidelines are applied for people who are have reported um, pulmonary nodules across the country. And then, uh, Paul, maybe you could comment on the key limitations of the study. Um, there are no perfect studies, as you mentioned. This is a analysis of a very large uh, database. Um, the the SEER 
um, a database. What important limitations do you want us to be aware of when interpreting the study? I think you've alluded to two already, that being uh, the Medicare population and then the coding. Yeah, so the, so the main limitation, I think people would agree, is the limitations of using claims and using the, the ICD codes that we have. Um, unfortunately, there's no real code for uh, nodules in general outside of solitary pulmonary nodule. So that's a limitation. And what we did is our main analysis was on the more restricted definition of just a solitary pulmonary nodule where we found the 5% rate. If we expanded that to another category that includes multiple nodules, but also includes other lung findings. So that would, using that definition would be an overestimate. By that definition, we get 12% and the restricted 5%. So it's probably, the prevalence is probably somewhere in between that. So that, so that was definitely a limitation. Um, of course, it's the Medicare population. So it's just people 65 and over. So there's, you know, a large population starting certainly by age 50 or so that would be getting reported nodules. Um, so, you know, it doesn't apply to those people. Um, another limitation is that we don't know how many of these people who had the um, reported nodules would have been eligible for low-dose CT screening. I think in, in Ray's study, they were able to assess that. Um, but just to reiterate this point, you know, the current rate of low-dose CT screening, even among eligibles, is around 10%. Now, in 2021, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, liber liberalized the criteria. So instead of needing 30 pack years, you only needed 20, and you only had to be age, uh, you had to be age 50 in, instead of 55. Um, so, but even with that, expanded uh, criteria for eligibility, there's still a lot of people who would have reported nodules and would have uh, cancer coming from those nodules who would not be eligible, even on the new criteria. But also, even if they are eligible, we have a very low rate of dissemination. So this is basically 2015 was when uh, basically Medicare and private insurers started covering it. So in eight years, we've gone from about zero to 10%. That rate is not going to just jump up dramatically in the next five to 10 years, even though there's a lot of efforts for that. So certainly for the next decade or so, there's going to be a lot of people um, getting lung cancer who aren't eligible, and then a very large number of people who are eligible but are, for various reasons, not getting screening. So for those people to be able to diagnose lung cancer early, um, because a lot of those are smokers or ex-smokers, they will be having respiratory issues and getting scans. Not that we want to, you know, we want to image wisely, not do too many scans, but they will be getting scans. And it is an opportunity at that time to find the lung nodules. And when you find them to do guideline concordant, uh, follow-up of them. I think that's really important. Thank you, Paul. Raymond, let's put you back to the discussion here. Um, Paul mentions this really important issue that uh, we're just not 
getting enough patients uh, who are undergoing lung cancer screening. As you've alluded to already, we need to take the data from these patients with incidental lung nodules um, and work on them so that we can detect lung cancer uh, sooner and uh, faster. How would you uh, suggest we go about um, triaging these patients? There's going to be a large number of patients that will be detected uh, incidentally. What role will um, uh, algorithms play, uh, workflow algorithms or blood tests, or, or, or what measures have you taken uh, to ensure that the right patients um, get the diagnostic testing to figure out if it is lung cancer or not. Raymond? Yeah, thanks. Um, you, you raise a, that's a million dollar question. Um, we, we, but, um, I think it's important to remember what we are trying to achieve here, um, which is to figure out ways to bring to the street, the average person uh, out in jeopardy from lung cancer, the possibility of finding it early. Um, yes, there is a large volume of radiologic studies done. We, we do scans and x-rays and all kinds of radiologic studies for many different reasons. Uh, we, we've seen the data across North America. It's probably the same thing in Europe. Where over the last several decades, the use of radiologic imaging has sequentially risen, um, for better or for worse. Uh, there's obviously the downside of, are we overusing radiologic imaging? This, this discussion has nothing to do with that. We're not saying go get this test. Unlike the situation with LDCT screening where we're saying, look, we think you're healthy, but we also know you're at risk for lung cancer, so please go get this test. Here, what we're saying is the test has already been done. It's sitting on the shelf. Somebody has already said there's something in there we think might be a ticking time bomb. Somebody please do something about it. And all we are saying is, well, what is the benefit of somebody actually going on to do something about it following guidelines. And the answer seems to be, oh, goodness, quite a gusher of lung cancers, especially early-stage lung cancer. So this, the, 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 the material is already there. Now what we as institutional um, um, healthcare systems, uh, providers, programs, need to apply our intellectual resources to figure out how can we use this material that's sitting on the shelf um, as efficiently as possible to help us reach the goal of saving more lives, rescuing more people from lung cancer. So I, I think when framed that way, um, it becomes a little bit more palatable. Um, there is also the aspect, of course, that as the expectations of survival among lung cancer patients will continue to rise, and the expectation that, yes, lung cancer is an eminently survivable condition, even when, uh, especially when caught early, I think there is the medical legal aspect of it. You have information that could have saved somebody's life. Yeah, the person came in with abdominal pain. They had a acute appendicitis. In the process, they had an abdominal CT. 
that CT scan took off a little part of the lower lobes and revealed the presence of a lesion. And we were so excited about rescuing the patient from appendicitis that we forgot that there was something in the in the lung that two or three years later becomes a lethal lung cancer. Those kinds of problems, when we recognize them, make it easier for us to agree on the need to invest in the processes, the structures and the processes that it'll take to be able to apply guidelines to rescue people. There's a lot of discovery opportunity that comes with this, of course. We mentioned AI. The other aspect of it that's really exciting is this hyperdynamic space looking at biomarkers that could be used to identify what's a cancer and what's not, and maybe ultimately which one is likely to be a biologically active cancer and which will not. This opportunity represented by both screening and incidental nodule programs actually create a larger, more representative pool of material with which to do both discoveries, discoveries in AI and discoveries in biomarker um, guided decision making and management. So I think, um, yes, it can be challenging when we look at it one way, but the truth is challenge is nothing but opportunity in disguise when looked at a different way. And I think that that's what the reality of this opportunity is. You're absolutely right. This is a formidable challenge, but uh, we need to rise up to it and see it as an opportunity. Um, Raymond, uh, maybe you could um, conclude um, this discussion with us, and then I'll turn to Paul. Um, What does this study mean for patient care uh, in those who have incidentally detected lung nodules for those uh, who ultimately uh, are diagnosed with lung cancer. What do you want our audience to take away um, from your paper? I want the audience to recognize the tremendous nature of this opportunity. Uh, The analogy I give is this is second harvest. This is taking stuff that's already there and using it to achieve the purpose that we all have agreed we want to achieve. So I, I would strongly urge everyone to go back home, take a hard look at their processes and figure out how to optimize them to create comprehensive guideline concordant management um, opportunities for, for, for the, their institutions. Concurrently, with implementing lung cancer screening. The other thing I would like people to take home with them is that screening is great, but right now not good enough. Um, Paul and uh, Chris Berg published a paper many years ago that uh, I I find fascinating. Um, You know, of course, that our screening criteria were developed out of the NLST criteria and then subsequently modified. And Paul and Chris looked at the proportion of lung cancer patients diagnosed um, in the United States who would have met NLST criteria. And they found it was 20 to 30 percent, 20 to 30 percent. Now, of course, the um, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force 
expanded eligibility. They've done that in two cycles now. But even then, within my Mississippi Delta cohort, with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force 2021 criteria, it's still barely half of all the patients diagnosed with lung cancer in my healthcare system who would qualify for screening. What's going to happen to the other half? Well, it turns out this alternative approach provides access as well to such patients. So reinforcing the, 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 the opportunity, because ultimately what we want to be able to do is have guidelines for lung cancer screening that more accurately overlap as close to 100% of the people destined to get lung cancer in our communities. And that work can only be benefited by having a wider range of early detection uh, patients, including those captured through incidental lung nodule programs like ours. That's very well said, Raymond. Thank you. Um, Paul, you get the last word. What do you want our uh, audience to be aware of? Well, just to reiterate a point that Raymond made that, you know, in our current situation, we have quite low uptake and dissemination of screening among the eligibles. And then we have, for better or worse, a certain level of of imaging um, that produces these uh, reported not incidental findings of reported nodules. And that's probably going to be stable roughly, you know, for a decade or so, for better or worse. So given that context, we have, you know, basically five times as many early stage lung cancers coming through that incidental nodule pathway than through the LOTO CT pathway. Um, and that's with generally not optimizing the incidental nodule pathway in terms of guideline concordant uh, follow-up. So it's just right now, this is an opportunity um, to capitalize on those things that, you know, they've gotten the scan, they've had the reported nodule. Now let's optimize that because right now that's the major pathway to detecting lung cancer early. And we will obviously work on the companion of getting more people who are eligible to get screening, maybe expanding eligibility. But for the current context, this is the main pathway. So, you know, let's try to optimize that pathway. Definitely agree. This is a really impressive piece of work that uh, your team put together. Um, And it definitely gives us light um, to focus on uh, increasing the pool of patients uh, who are eligible for uh, lung cancer detection. Um, Today, we discussed the chest article entitled uh, Pulmonary Nodules, Lung Cancer Screening, and Lung Cancer in the Medicare Population. Um, A very big thank you to uh, Paul and Raymond for really a fascinating conversation, a lot of insight. Um, and a challenge has been laid down to us, which we need to seize. Um, A very big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.